We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Last week, I framed this game as a must-win, with real consequence to Burhalter. I said that him going all in on this game was worthy of admiration, respect, and support. However, it turns out I was wrong. The United States Soccer Federation informed me that I misinterpreted Burhalter's words and that it wasn't a must-win-or-else type of scenario. Evidently, it was not worthy of admiration, respect, and support. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast. We look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about how important the win against Canada was for the U.S. men's national team, or wasn't. In our Mossy Makes the Case segment, Mossy's going to be talking about a Zlatan-less MLS and where do the teams, specifically Los Angeles and other teams, go without Zlatan. Uh, in our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about MLS expansion and Lewandowski. And in our Back 3 segment, we'll be talking about the NWSL and Chelsea and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mossy? I am good. Uh, back in L.A. after a week in New York visiting the parents, uh, where I did pick up a little bit of a cold. My voice sounds raspy today. From partying, or what were you doing back there? Just the, the change in temperature? Change it's, in uh, temperature, Oh, yeah. wow, you can't handle it. Your blood is thin from the uh, Los Angeles uh, lifestyle, right? Yep, Was yep. it cold back there? It wasn't even that cold, but it is such an adjustment coming from here to there. So, yeah, I mean, my voice, I sound like Nas today. It's very <laughs> raspy. Uh, but I'm sure everybody's out there saying, God, he sounds like Nas. I, I, I spent my weekend out in the Inland Empire. You know what that is? Uh, in, in Inland, obviously, from uh, Los Angeles. They call it the Inland Empire, i.e. At a place called Chino. Uh, there's a big soccer complex out there. So I was knee-deep in youth soccer, AYSO youth, youth soccer. And it is, uh, it, it, is, it is something to behold. It's no, it's no paintball like we talked about last week, but it is, uh, it's a, a culture unto itself. So it was fun to see the future of American soccer on display. All different age groups, uh, all, all different teams from different areas of uh, California. I had my ubiquitous chair that you sit on the sideline. If you, if you ever go to a youth soccer game, you'll see all the parents with they, their chairs, and they go higher and higher in quality and, and expense. Mine has an actual canopy on it. It's pretty it's pretty awesome. So I sit there in like a, a throne watching the uh, youth soccer play out in front of me. Did you, amidst all your activities this weekend, catch the score of the Michigan-Michigan State football game? I did not because I was, when it came to the, uh, the game of American football, in particular the collegiate game of American football, there was only one game for me this weekend, and that was uh, the Ohio State Rutgers game, as you know. 52-point spread, uh, which means that when the game started, Mossy, from a betting perspective, Rutgers was already up 52 to 0, okay? Now, you would have made some money on Rutgers if you had bet Rutgers uh, because Ohio State did not cover the spread, evidently. So I take that as a victory when it comes to my Scarlet Knights facing up against Ohio State. How did your Wolverines of, uh, um, where are you guys up there in uh, Ann Arbor, right? Uh, how, how, how did that happen? 
Big House? What, where was it? Was it the Big uh, House? Big House, yeah. 44 to 10 victory. You beat Michigan uh, State. Yes. You are champions of Michigan, the state of Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Harbaugh has, at the very least, flipped that rivalry around, but now he has the other one he has to sort out, which I don't know if it's going to happen this year because, as you well, mentioned— Well, because they have Ohio State Ohio coming State up. Ohio State is an absolute But that's the, that's the big one. Yeah. Now, are we, st- are we yet at a point where you will entertain the possibility of a Final Four? No, no. It's not going to happen. two no conference what. losses, no. But I'm um, to the point now where I will entertain the possibility that we could beat Ohio State uh, this year. At one point, it was like no chance this year. Okay. I still think they're clearly better than us and probably are going to beat us, but it's at least plausible now. Riveting stuff as usual, Mossy. <laughs> um, okay, uh, anything else before we head on? Should we light this candle? Uh, yep. All right, as you know, each and every week we kick the pod off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective, and this week it goes a little something like this. U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter got a little breathing room as the U.S. crushed Canada 4-1 in Orlando. It was an emphatic response to losing to Canada a few weeks ago for the first time in 34 years. Now, ironically, the U.S., who under Berhalter has been attempting to play a more difficult possession-based, patient, and evolved style, went back to the future to beat Canada. Rather than trying to continue to be something they've never been, they showed up as simply a better version of themselves, leaning heavily on traditional American traits like set pieces and counterattacks. Now, last week, I framed this game as a must-win, with real consequence to Berhalter, and as such, the biggest game in Greg Berhalter's tenure. I based this, in large part, on Berhalter's public statement saying, quote, only a win would suffice. I said that him going all in on this game was worthy of admiration, respect, and support. However, it turns out I was wrong. The United States Soccer Federation informed me that I misinterpreted Berhalter's words and that it wasn't a must-win-or-else type of scenario. Berhalter was merely stating the obvious fact that only a win would enable the team to advance from their Nations League group. So. I apologize. Evidently, it was not worthy of admiration, respect, and support. As a matter of fact, there was no pressure, no importance, and no consequence associated with this result at all. As was evidenced before the game by the United States Soccer Federation Sporting Director Ernie Stewart saying that he's pleased with what he has seen and an individual result wouldn't change that. So, the U.S. won. But the result doesn't matter. Fine. Let me know when it does. All right, Mossy, there's my uh, State of the Union for this week. And I know I'm being kind of a smartass when I, uh, when I say uh, those things. But in general, uh, how did you view this game? Not just the actual 90 minutes, but some of the things that I mentioned, uh, especially Ernie Stewart's comments beforehand. Uh, and then we come to find out that I may have misinterpreted the way that Greg Berhalter was framing this game. So in general, what were your thoughts on the game? Well, first of all, let me say this to the U.S. Soccer Federation. Thanks for listening. <laughs> But it's interesting to me how every debate about the U.S. national team is now framed as a matter of style and taste Mm -hmm. and something that's subjective. And I wonder how people differentiate between that and just good and bad soccer. There are certain things that I look at as just basic tenets of good soccer and having players that are technically proficient and comfortable on the ball. And I thought there was sort of a general understanding in this country that part of the reason why the U.S. isn't at the level yet where they're competing toe-to-toe with the top soccer nations and winning World Cups is because they're not technically proficient enough. And part of what the U.S. needs to do to get to that level is to develop players that are more comfortable on the ball. But when you start going that route, you get sort of wrapped up into this whole style of play debate. So how do you reconcile those two things? I've talked about you know, romance and the romantic in me and others at different times. And the pragmatist in me and the, and you know, while I said that this game wasn't worthy of respect and admiration, actually, Greg Berhalter, he has much of my respect and admiration for what he's doing. I don't necessarily agree that he has the pieces to do what he wants to do, but I can appreciate, and as I said, respect that he is trying to do something different, to try to push us to evolve, to be something different and therefore better and enable us ultimately to compete at an elite level. We're, we're, we're discussing a game against Canada. That's, that's, where we're, that's where we are right now. I think there's two ways to look at this because the specific way that this team played against Canada to beat Canada was without a doubt a much more pragmatic and as I mentioned the State of the Union, a much more traditional way. They completely conceded possession to the tune of 37% possession. Now we all know 
possession is one thing. Possession is a purpose is what you are trying to get. And the U.S. was ruthless and efficient in the way that they used the possession that they, that they had. However, a part of me says you either look at this as Greg Berhalter completely betraying his, his principles and his philosophy in doing that, uh, because if, if you're going to do it against Canada, then there's no hope to do it against much better teams. But if you can't do what you were talking about in terms of uh, having an adherence to possession, coming out of the back, keeping possession, all that kind of stuff against Canada, then what hope do we have to do it against other teams? And I know every game's different. I get that. Or you can look at it, and this is kind of the way that I, that I am choosing to look at it, in that, yes, there's an element of romance that has been lost, but there's also, I think, a value and a respect that should come from Greg Berhalter in, a, in this situation, and maybe more so for situations to come, adapting and adopting to the reality that he has faced in the situation, and more importantly, the talent available. And so that's where that pragmatism uh, came in. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning to that side, but I'm not sure if I'm totally willing or ready to get rid of it because he was so adamant from the beginning that this is what he wanted to do. Yeah, and, and Burhalter's vision of how he ideally wants the U.S. to play is one that I share. You know, there are different ways to win in soccer, but I do think that the ability to control games is the best path to consistent success, and I equate that with, with having the ball. I think if you consistently have uh, disproportionately more possession than the opponent, there's a better chance that you're going to create more scoring chances than the other team. And if you create more scoring chances than the other team, by and large, you're probably going to score more goals. I know that sounds simplistic, but that's kind of a philosophy that I, I buy into. But if you don't have the players to do it and you're forcing it and it's coming at the expense of results, then right. it sort of defeats the whole purpose. So I agree with you. I, I sort of lean on the side that he showed some adaptability and recognition of the situation here. So uh, I don't mind it that much. But I do think eventually someday the U.S. is going to have to go to the place that Burhalter is trying to mm -hmm. take them to you know fully maximize their potential as a soccer nation. I do think that there was a sentiment out there, and I don't. I'm not sure this has necessarily changed any just because you beat Canada, but there is a sentiment out there that Greg Burhalter is hard-headed in a way that he he needn't be, in that he is so steadfast in what he wants to do that he didn't have the capacity to change either because he was so stubborn that he wouldn't do it, or he just wasn't proficient enough from a, from a technical and tactical perspective to understand when you need to change. And even the greatest coaches in the world understand the realities of the situation, and they are, they are flexible. And so in that sense, I think Greg Berhalter showed us a side of himself that we hadn't seen before that was good. But there's also, he's, he's not going to get the credit necessarily because there is going to be this sense that it was reactive and that, that, that people like myself and others were putting so much on this game that he just he regressed in, toward, in order to capitulate to this pressure out there. So also the question is, to what degree does a senior national team coach have control over how a country plays? Or is that just a product of the youth system and the players you're developing, and he's getting sort of the finished product with very little time to practice? So a, a national team coach just has to look at it as, for better or for worse, these are the best players this country has, and at the end of the day, results are what matters, and I just have to figure out a way to get the best possible results with these players, and it's not incumbent on me to really shape how a country plays. That has to, you know, that's a process that starts much earlier than that. I think it's a combination of a couple of things. So for example, would Spain have played the way that they did without the existence of Barcelona? No, okay? The, the direct correlation to what Barcelona was doing, both in the personnel, but in the way that they played, is undeniable, okay? Secondly, I think that there is a cultural reflection in the way the national team plays, a general understanding, and more importantly, a general agreement of this is who we are, this is how we're going to play. You look at Uruguay or something like that in the way that, in the way that they play. And this gets back to something we've talked about before, where the incredible diversity that makes us the greatest country in the world, in my opinion, is also makes, gives us the biggest challenge because we don't have that collective understanding and or agreement as to how we want to play. And so therefore, I think it is kind of incumbent on whoever that person is in charge of the team to say, this is the path because we have 10 different pathways. Other countries and cultures have one, maybe two, all right? We have 10 different pathways. Leadership is about sometimes making a decision, all right? Not everybody has to agree with it, but at some point you have to make a decision. 
You don't want uh, paralysis by analysis, right? And so that person at the head has to say, this is the way that we are going. And so I, I do think that in this case, it would be Greg Berhalter and, and Ernie Stewart, and we'll talk about it in a second. But the, the, the people in leadership saying, this is, this is who we want to be. Is it reflective of everybody and every type of thinking that exists in our culture, in our specific culture of the United States? Absolutely not. And I think it's, I think it's next to impossible to do something like that. One Canada point, but I think it's relevant sure. uh, to the U.S. with Pulisic. You know, national team managers are often criticized for playing a player at a different position than he's playing for his club. And it was interesting, John Herdman got criticized the other way with Alfonso Davies right. for playing him at left back. And he said afterwards, look, that's the position he's been playing at a Bayern. He's coming off this unbelievable performance at left back against Dortmund. But I actually do come down on the side that if you're John Herdman, you have to understand that Bayern and Canada are completely different contexts. Sure. Bayern can afford to have a player with Alfonso Davies his attacking skills at left back because of all the other attacking talent they have. Canada cannot. To have your best attacking player at left back in a game where he's going to have to expend so much energy defensively, I think is, is a Especially bit of a waste. Especially when Christian Pulisic isn't even involved. When you found out that Christian Pulisic wasn't going to be running up that right-hand side or, or whatever, or, or left-side side, but having him to, to bail you out when a Christian Pulisic is. If you're, uh, in general, a national team coach, you're trying to figure out what position to play a player, to what degree should you be influenced by what position he's playing for his club? Oh, I think it's huge. I think you put players in positions to succeed. There's there's so much talk about, and, and rightfully so at times, you want to challenge players and you want to get them out of their their comfort zone to use a, uh, uh, a Jurgenism, Jurgen Klinsmannism. Uh, and that's that's all fine and well, but when it comes to the national team, I, the national team should be limited when it comes to experimentation. This is why the national team and or United States soccer in being involved in development sometimes rubs me the wrong way. The development happens elsewhere. And then you come to the national team. And I'm not saying you can't get better playing with the national team. I'm not saying you, at times you don't experiment. But for the most part, you put players in the positions where they are best at. Now, if you're Canada, where Alfonso Davies is so good or Canada is so mediocre that he can play in multiple positions, then you have to do what's best for the team at that point. But I like rewarding players by putting them in the positions that they are most uh, comfortable in. Last thing for me, and it plays into the mm -hmm. uh, comments Ernie Stewart made. So, as you mentioned, the U.S. were taping this on a Monday. Tomorrow they face Cuba and the Cayman Islands. They're going to win that game and advance to the sure. knockout stages of the CONCACAF Na uh, Nations League. And that will conclude Greg Berhalter's first year in charge. Uh, give me your overall thoughts on year one of the Berhalter era. I think that the failure to qualify for 2018, uh, the World Cup for the men, still permeates through everything that happens on and off the field for the United States uh, Federation. The only entity that is that seems to be protected from that is the U.S. women's national team. So I think that until the men's team qualifies and gets back to a men's World Cup, there is going to be a skepticism. There is going to be a folding of arms. The only thing that matters, and it was on display yet once again, when it comes to these to, to the national team, is winning. Winning covers up a lot of things. When was, when was the last time you saw the United States women's team on a consistent basis taken to task for, uh, let's see, for a, a lack of diversity or um, criticized for the way the hiring process was for a coach or for the general manager or whatever it ends up being or, uh, you know, any type of criticism that we often lay at the feet of the, the, uh, the men's national team or the United States Soccer Federation in general. And why is that? That is because the U.S. women, they win. They win consistently. And ultimately, that is what people care about. That is what people equate with progress, to be quite honest with you. Regardless, we can talk about style and all until, until the cows come home. But if your team is winning and consistently winning, that is what people want to see. I'm not talking about, there's certainly those of us that are that are in the weeds and stuff like that but for the most part the perception of your team directly correlates to whether your team is winning or not that's that applies to a lot of things in life and certainly applies uh, to a lot of sports when it comes to ernie stewart i think you know his comments before the game as i said he came out uh, and was asked about was there any pressure on greg berhalter for this game you know i i had heaped pressure on it because of the way that i interpreted greg berhalter's words and you know he he came out and did what a sporting director should do which is support your person and i i get that 
But he did it in a way that played down and almost alleviated all pressure for this Canada game. And I thought that was needless. I didn't, I, I didn't think that needed to be done. We get it that you're supportive, okay? But we are not in a world where the United States Soccer Federation should be married to Greg Berhalter or anybody else at the expense of possibly qualifying for another World Cup. And each and every game that you have is an opportunity to assess Greg Berhalter, okay? He came through this last game with flying colors. If they hadn't beaten Canada, okay, there should be consequences. There should be ramifications. And I said last week, there should be change. Does that mean that you fire Greg Berhalter? Maybe. If you don't think that qualifying for the World Cup, if you think it's in jeopardy, then yeah, you make the changes need be. Or you make other changes. But to just have a game, just to have a game, all I've, all I've heard about my entire adult life and much of my, my, my uh, younger life is how important competition is in life and in sports. It gets the best out of people. It motivates people to do better, okay? I, and I've heard so much that our soccer culture doesn't have enough competition. It doesn't have enough moments where a fire is lit under our ass to make us do things that we can do but don't know we can do or haven't done before. And when you get an opportunity to do that, you use that opportunity to downplay it and deaden that moment. And so I thought it was, I thought it was a lost opportunity. And I'm not saying that Ernest Schroeder should come out, come out and say, either you win this or you're fired. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But you're asking us to care about the Nations League. And yet you come out and say that there's, it really, you know, this game really doesn't matter or any one game really doesn't matter. So that, I think that was... I, I get to a certain extent what he's doing. And by the way, my jab in the State of the Union at Greg Berhalter or the, the game, it wasn't Greg Berhalter, at the game, was because the United States Soccer Federation did reach out to me. And I get it. They, you know, their job is to spin me and others in the media and try to get us to, uh, to write and to say positive things. I, they understand that. I get it. We understand the dance, uh, the dance that we do. But to go into... Uh, parsing out words and interpretation of words. Okay, I get it. But you can't have it both ways, okay? If, it, if he wasn't saying that this was a must-win game, if he wasn't saying that there was consequence to this game, then fine. Then it doesn't matter. And then you don't get my respect and my admiration for, uh, for doing, something like, doing something like that. And like I said, I know I'm being kind of a smartass here, but that's kind of my job, right? Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part, it's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again. Time for uh, Mossy Makes the Case. What are you casing for this week, Mossy? My case is that while Zlatan did it his way, it might be time for the Galaxy to do it a different way. Ooh. Zlatan Ibrahimovic's LA Galaxy adventure is over. He made that clear in a tweet last week in which he thanked Galaxy fans for making him feel alive again and then told him to go back to watching baseball. <laughs> It remains to be seen where he'll end up next, but just as fascinating to me is how the Galaxy will replace him. Fascinating because the decision comes at a time when there is very much a divide in Major League Soccer. Many clubs now believe the best path to success is signing young, up-and-coming South American and Central American players as opposed to aging, established, world-class stars. No franchise has been more synonymous with the established, world-class star route than the Galaxy, and Zlatan's performances the last two years, along with the attention he garnered, did enable folks in that organization to defend that approach. Keep in mind, the Galaxy are in Los Angeles, and they're now competing for eyeballs with LAFC. So the expectation is they will follow the same path. The names mentioned as possible Zlatan replacements have been Cavani, Bale, Balotelli, and Ozil. But I do wonder if the arrivals of Guillermo Barros-Gelotto and Christian Pavon signaled a shift in philosophy that will only become fully apparent this offseason. After all, why bring in a manager like that if you're not going to take advantage of his connections in the South American market? So while the smart money might be on a Bale or Cavani, I do wonder if from a Galaxy perspective, rather than trying to find the next Zlatan, the smarter money might be on finding the next Miguel Almiron. 
All right, Masi. Uh, interesting. Okay. So first off, let's deal with the, the Zlatan departure thing. You know, I said last week, not on the pod, I think I said on, on Twitter, it was uh, that I, I called Zlatan the, the perfect star in that he increased interest, he increased relevancy, and not for nothing, but he increased the business, not just of the Los Angeles Galaxy, but of Major League Soccer. And we saw it at all levels, whether it's jersey sales, uh, whether it's broadcast, all, all of that kind of stuff, he had an impact. And there's not a lot of players, to be quite honest with you, in the history of MLS that can say that. He was that rare combination of unavoidable personality and unparalleled talent. And yet, when I hear people talk about the Los Angeles Galaxy now without uh, Zlatan, I have yet to hear anybody really say that they are going to be better. Now, this is what 50 goals in two years, uh, a guy who was so important to this team in terms of going, and yet there is this understanding, and I think it's legitimate, that the team is going to be better, addition by subtraction, because he demanded all of the tension. He, in the same way that Beckham uh, took up all the oxygen in the room, he, he certainly did too, in a, in, a much, in a different way, but still with the same type of effect. And everyone was subservient to him, literally on the field, because of the way that he played. And his supporting cast needed to do that, otherwise the team wouldn't function at all. But playing like that, and living like that, it can be exhausting, it can be frustrating, and ultimately I think the realization is that it's unsustainable. Um, and having said all of that, I hope we have more Zlatans. Uh, I love what he did, I love the interest that he brought, I love that he never apologized for who he was, and that's what big, bold stars do. They have this this beautiful, this beautiful arrogance. I think, to, to answer your question though, the Los Angeles Galaxy is the Galacticos. I don't think they can afford to go the way of even even in Atlanta. I think because of what Los Angeles is, because of the the now once again we're talking about competition again, the competition between LAFC, I think they have to go big. But they have to go big smart. And I think whoever they come that comes in, while they may have a big name, I think uh, Guillermo Barasquiloto will have understood that that person has to fit. They, that person has to adjust more to what he is coming into as opposed to the team adjusting to that person coming in. Yeah, I think it's going to be Cavani. I mentioned a few weeks ago that every Mauro Icardi goal is pushing Cavani towards MLS. He's in the last year of his PSG contract. They acquired Icardi on a one-season loan with an option to buy permanently, and he's fitting great. So it's trending towards them buying him permanently next summer and letting Cavani go. And by all accounts, he wants to come to MLS. And Cavani is similar to Zlatan in some ways, but different in others. He's different in that he's more of like a humble, hardworking guy, which has really endeared him to PSG fans. I found that out firsthand this summer because every cab driver I would ask, do you prefer Neymar or Mbappe? And they would all say none of the above. Cavani is my favorite player. Really? Yeah, they all love Cavani. But he is similar in that he is a guy who's this star striker with great pedigree. He was going to be 33 years old next season. And if you acquire him, you do have to build around him to some degree. So it would be the Galaxy still going a certain route, which, as you mentioned, you know, you were the GM that brought in Beckham, which you could argue sort of set them on this path. Where So you think they've sort of created this brand now where they always have to have that guy who's sort of a globally recognized name as the face of the team? Yeah. And there's more competition because I'm sure that Miami is looking at someone like Cavani. Now, Cavani, from a playing standpoint, he may score. He's not probably not going to score as much as Zlatan did because I think there'll be a recognition that it has to be much more of a team. He's also doesn't, by all accounts, he doesn't speak English or certainly not to the level of what Zlatan does. And he's not a flamboyant, massive type of ego player. I'm not saying he doesn't have an ego, but it's never manifested in the way that he comports himself off the, off the field or on the field for that matter. Uh, he's a much more meat and potatoes type of player, if you can say that about a millions millions of dollar type of player. I had a big issue, by the way, to circle back to Zlatan with the baseball line. Yeah. Everything else in that farewell was fine. It was uh, there was even there was even like a human moment there where he said, "You made me feel alive yeah. again." And then all the stuff about I came, I conquered, I gave you Zlatan. That's fine. That's all on brand. That's the stuff we yeah. love about him. But wh why throw in that little line at the end? Go back to watching baseball. Yeah. That to me it is was, just obnoxious. It was, yeah, it was obnoxious. It was. I mean, it was. Wasn't malicious. Nothing Zlatan does is malicious. And while Zlatan was important, the league is going to go on. 
Uh, the league is not all Zlatan. And you mentioned Atlanta United. It was them winning MLS Cup with a team led by Miguel Amiron and Joseph Martinez that really triggered this talk that this is the new way to do it in MLS mm-hmm. and you, you should seek out these younger South American players. And, you know, we work with Jovan Karofsky, who's a Bundesliga commentator for us and also works in the Galaxy front office. And, you know, I don't want to reveal things that he said in private conversations, but we've, we've debated that point of the merits of going that route versus signing the Zlatans and Roonies. And so it, it is, would you agree that is sort of a debate that Yeah, 100%. It's a a debate because, and you know, it's, you have to know your market. You have to know your fan base. It is a little different, a little apples to oranges type of thing here. The Los Angeles Galaxy, as I said, from 1996 has been built on big names and big stars. Atlanta came in and did it very differently. Now they spent plenty of money. Uh, so there was the ambition relative to the money that they spent, but there wasn't that recognition that big stars were coming in. Now, since then, they have, they have done some big things, but not to the Cavani and the Zlatan type of, uh, type of level. I just think that the Galaxy, unless they want to be something different going forward, and that's not what has been promised from the beginning. You, know, you expect the Galaxy to do big and bold things, and you expect them to win. And so they have to find that balance. That's always been the, the challenge for anybody working at the Galaxy is to find that balance. And by the way, the, the Copa Libertadores is, is this upcoming Saturday. River yeah. played Flamengo in Lima. You asked me a few weeks ago what players involved in this final should MLS fans be looking at. And yeah, and I, and I rattled off a bunch of names. I left off two obvious ones. Arascaeta, who plays for Flamengo, and Quintero, who plays for uh, River Plate, who's Colombian. And they both fit that profile of South American playmakers in their mid-20s. So I, I like a mulligan on that question because I, I left out a couple of obvious names. But one name I did mention uh, at the time was Gabi Gol. And it was interesting. Within minutes of Zlatan tweeting that he was leaving the Galaxy, uh, Matt Doyle was already banging the drum of the guy the Galaxy should go after is Gabi Gol and throw some crazy money at him. And there were snobs that, that replied to Matt Doyle and said, you're nuts. That's ridiculous. Why would a player like that go to MLS? And I think Matt correctly replied that in a world in which P.T. Martinez, who was a 25-year-old Argentinian international fresh off leading River Plate to a Copa Libertadores final win over Boca Juniors, I mean, crown South American player of the year can sign with MLS for the money that he did. It's not that much of a stretch for Gabi Gol, but I will say one thing about that. For whatever reason, Brazilians have not bought into MLS yet to the degree that Argentines have and some of these other mm-hmm. South American nations. You know, an Argentinian, whatever the Gabi Gol equivalent is in Argentina would be plausible that he would go to MLS and and buy into the notion of using it as a bridge to Europe. I just don't get that sense from Brazilians yet. Maybe it's coming. Maybe a Gabigol could be the trailblazer in that regard. But right now, a guy that age, he's 23, sort of a national team caliber player that, that, uh, although Europe, I will say, is not buying into this Gabigol resurgence that much. Inter want no part of him. I haven't seen any big clubs step up and be linked with him. But there are clubs of the sort of the West Ham, Everton ilk. And I, I still think a Brazilian would be of the mind that you would clearly choose that route rather than go to MLS. So ultimately, I think it won't happen, but it was not a ridiculous name for Matt Doyle to throw out there, and it doesn't hurt for the Galaxy to put in a call for sure. And you also have to, I mean, when when Atlanta got Tata, and now LA has uh, Guillermo Barasquiloto, that messenger, that's important because that is a conduit. That is somebody who players look to, they trust, and that brings a relevancy to say, okay, it's okay to come here. It's okay to come here because I, I know that that person would not steer me wrong. And so, you know, down in down in Miami, they got to name a coach too. And I think being that, you know, they, they call themselves the gateway to Latin America. Well, that gateway, somebody has to have a key to that gate. And if you put a coach in there that has those connections and that is that gatekeeper and brings that relevancy to those to that potential talent coming, and I'm not saying you're, you're, you're the Brazilian it was Brazilian or Argentinian or whatever it ends up being, but someone that players trust either through resume or through personal connection, that is, that is huge. That, that is really, I mean, it's it's like in anything, if somebody brings along their, back in the day, it would have been Rolodex, but we don't use Rolodexes anymore, but (laughs) brings their contact list and the connections that they have, it can be incredibly valuable. Anything else, Mossy? No, that's it. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for uh, Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on the uh, social media machines and uh, send us your comments, questions, and concerns. And we pick three each week. And we've picked three this week. Mossy, what do the people want to know this week in the Ask Alexi segment? First off, uh, these questions were selected by the under fire Alex Dowd. I don't know if you noticed, there's a Dowd out movement on really? Twitter that's uh, 
which is unavoidable. Is this I mean, a must? This is a must-win uh, week for him. Listen, it's like a game against Canada. You've talked about youth <laughs> development. We brought in a kid with potential, right. but it's been two years now, and it's just not happening. Hey, what people don't talk about is the is the relatively small percentage of youth players that actually go on to anything. Yes, you know? we only see the, the the success stories and all the other ones behind. Yeah. All right, anyway, so the fans are fed up. But uh, first up, at a Kephart underscore mn. What else must Lewandowski do to have a serious shot at the Ballon d'Or and FIFA World Player of the Year? Please don't say play for Madrid or Barca. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mossy, but I think that, look, it's not as if people didn't know who Robert Lewandowski uh, is or was, okay? But I think this year in particular, there is a focus on what he is doing and a, a general global acceptance that this guy is doing something special. And the, the response is, well, you know, he's been doing this for years and years and years, and why now? I, I don't know why, and, or I don't know why it's taken this long. And you're right. If he went to Madrid and Barca, it would be an automatic if he continued to do what he is, is done. I don't see that happening. I think that ship kind of sailed. So it's going to be in the form of Bayern Munich. Uh, and from an international perspective, that's just not really going to happen for him uh, the way it would for a Messi or for a, a Cristiano. So I think he just keeps doing what he's doing. And I just think the way that he is being viewed this year. Now, I think I, I do think you still have to be there holding up trophies. And so, look, he can definitely win the league. I, I think that something has to be done. All right, he doesn't have to win, but there's something special has to be done in Champions League for him to be in that real shot of it. I think he's going to be no matter what in the shortlist when it comes down to it, just be, unless, God forbid, he, he gets hurt. And even if he get hurt, gets hurt for this year, what he has done is pretty, is pretty phenomenal. So I, I, am, I, am I wrong in, in the way that I'm feeling that there's a, a, a general love right now for him that hasn't existed in the past? You're 100% right. I actually mentioned this last week on the pod. Lewandowski and Benzema are the two guys that have hit some milestones recently that are making people take a step back and reflect and say, boy, we've been so caught up in Messi and Ronaldo. We sort of overlooked what a great career these guys are having. And I love Lewandowski, but let me say this. People do make this mistake sometimes of looking at a guy who's had a great career and saying, he should have won a Ballon d'Or somewhere along the way, but you actually have to give me a year. And when you go through it, it's really tough in this age of Messi and Ronaldo when those guys were yeah. doing what they were doing week in and week out for their clubs. Lewandowski has never won the Champions League. He's never had a great major tournament for Poland. Those are things he could have done to perhaps stick out in a given year. It's just been this incredible week in, week out production for Bayern, but it hasn't been at quite that Messi-Ronaldo level. So I'm actually okay with him never having won the Ballon d'Or, but it doesn't take away from what an incredible career he's had. He's one of the greatest strikers of all time. And keep in mind, uh, he it's not just Bayern. He was doing it at Dortmund mm -hmm. before he ever got to Bayern. This is a guy who had a hat-trick against Bayern in the German Cup final in 2012 and scored four goals in a Champions League semifinal game against Real Madrid in 2013. Uh, so it, it is just a remarkable career. He, he, he must go down as, if not the greatest, one of the greatest free transfers ever. I mean, the fact that Bayern were able to get him for free is mind-boggling. And you mentioned the, the, the notion of him going to Madrid or Barcelona. At what point it seemed like he was very unhappy with the direction of Bayern and really concerned about their future and really thinking that he does need to make that sort of move to, to perhaps win the Champions League and gain the recognition that he deserves. He did, this past September, sign a contract yeah. extension with Bayern until 2023, which is interesting. That probably takes him until the end of his prime. So I guess he's been sufficiently yeah. convinced that, that Bayern is the place for him to, to stay at the, the next few years. So that's interesting. Yeah, I do think he came to the realization that, first off, they're going to pay me a whole lot of money. <laughs> which they should. There's nothing more important in our game than the, uh, than scoring goals, and therefore there's nothing more important than the people that score goals, and he does it better than anybody else out there. We'll see what ultimately happens. I do think he's going to be in the running because, uh, you know, Messi is Messi, but he's not the Messi right now, and Cristiano is certainly not the Cristiano right now. So I think that there's an opportunity for an alternative type of, uh, uh, of pick. Now, we've had alternatives, uh, recently, but I, uh, to answer your question, what's your name again? Kephart, right over there in Minnesota. I'm I'm assuming right there. I think if he keeps doing what he's doing right now, it's it's not inconceivable that he doesn't win it. As a matter of fact, I think it demands him be in that short list and in the final three. Let's say next up at W S Gillis the sixth. Boy, there are five other W S Gillises. He's a legacy. 
How would you approach building an MLS <laughs> expansion roster now if you had the chance? What positions would you use for a DP? Oh, interesting. Okay, so right now the expansion process looks very different than it did 5, 10, 20 years ago for, uh, for Major League Soccer in that you are given a, a tremendous amount of money in the form of targeted allocation and general allocation. We're not going to get into the weeds on that. So I think... First off, you have a recognition, and you can look no further than, let's say, an LAFC or an Atlanta. I think four to five of your starting 11 have to be MLS experienced. Uh, not that they just stepped on the field once, but MLS experienced. I mean, we saw the change up in Minnesota when Ike Opara and Ozzy Alonso came. Uh, it immediately turned them into a competitive team. So I think you have to concentrate on getting four or five grizzled, I guess is the word, but it doesn't mean they don't necessarily have to be old, but they have to understand what the league is. And they can use that to get you points, to give perspective to the other players there, and to give you confidence of having people that have been there and done that. And to the extent that you can do that down the, uh, the spine of your team, goalkeeper, center back, uh, somebody in a, a defensive midfield type of position, that's great. Then, so there's, that's one bucket. The second bucket is the spending of that money on international players. And that's what gets back to that gateway to South America. Uh, that gets back to the Joseph Martinez, Miguel Almiron type of thing that weren't just diamonds in the rough. It's not like nobody knew about them, but they certainly weren't household names. They were, they were, you were involved in the discussion and the competition, let's say, of other teams around the world. And that for that was reflected in the price and at times the historical price that you paid. But you were paying for the potential. You were paying for the fact that you were getting a young up and coming type of uh, type of player that you want to appreciate, help you win games and appreciate in value, which is what we saw with the Miguel Almiron, for example. That's the second bucket. And then there's the third bucket that we've talked about when we talk about Cavani and Zlatan and stuff like that. And so that's where you use your designated player and you do it in the second bucket too because you have your three designated players. And so that's where you go and you get a player that is recognizable, that a player that everybody that's involved in soccer, regardless of what level they are involved, can recognize. Even if it's, oh, that's the guy I saw in the World Cup, or that's the guy with the wonderful hair, or whatever it ends, ends up being, that you can build a, uh, that you can build a club around as a face. And we even saw it in NYCFC for some of the challenges that they have. David Villa was a marker and it was a flag in the ground from the start. And so I think you need to do that wherever you are. And once again, it signifies your ambition. It signifies uh, what you're doing. So that's the type of stuff that I do. That's Those are the three buckets that I would lay out. And then you have to go out and, and do it. And then you need a coach. You need a coach that is going to either understand the league so much that they can get these players uh, doing stuff that isn't expected of them, or from is such so high profile that once again, he or she is bringing in a Rolodex and bringing in those connections a la Tata uh, and that kind of stuff. And then finally, I think you need a principle and an understanding and an approach club-wise that you are either going to go the soft launch route or you're going to come in all guns blazing. You only get one chance to make a first impression. And what that first impression is, is completely up to you. And we've seen how the soft launch at times has, has wasted that, that first impression. And that's, that's much more from a business perspective uh, and, a, and a template that you're following as to what you want to be. So anyway, uh, what was his name? Gillis, the, the, the sixth. Yeah, the sixth. That's, that's how I would approach building an MLS expansion roster. All right, next up, this I would say is the Pele versus Maradona of music. Okay. <laughs> At sure. Dot's dad wants to know, simply put, this is a great question. Okay. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Oh, it's a, it's a great question. It's a simple question. Um, so while uh, from a rock and roll uh, perspective, I love the Rolling Stones. I think they are cooler in the way that they look, in the way that they act, in many of the, the, the music that they have put out, I think that they're cooler. I still have to say the Beatles. And it's for this reason, because I've been asked this question before, but it is for this reason. I, and this is just my personal preference, I do not relate to the blues. And if you listen to a lot of the early catalog from uh, the Rolling Stones, it was heavily blues influenced. And I'm not saying the Beatles didn't have their blues moments, but I think the Beatles are better songwriters I think the Beatles, from start to finish, their catalog 
speaks to me much more than the Rolling Stones catalog. And so I am going to fall on the Beatles side of this. I, I like the way the Stones looked and the Beatles wrote. And so that, that's, that's what happened. Now, by the way, just because uh, the blues does not, I don't relate to the blues, okay? While I certainly, from a, a lifestyle perspective, uh, don't relate to, to a lot of the stuff that comes out of the blues, but that doesn't preclude you from understanding or loving the blues. There's lots of people out there that certainly didn't have the upbringing uh, and the experience that many of the blues artists or people that are into the blues necessarily have, but that doesn't mean that you can like or not like uh, a music. It just doesn't, it, it is monotonous to me, it is boring to me, and it doesn't touch me in the way that it touches others. And believe me, I've tried because I've seen people and the way that they react, the passion that they have for it, and the emotion that it brings. And it just, I, I cannot fathom it. I just don't understand that. And then maybe that makes me vacant, or maybe that makes me shallow, or maybe that, maybe that makes me in your mind a heathen, or whatever it ends up being. But it just doesn't speak to me. Are the who generally accepted as number three? Are they the Djokovic in the pantheon of... Well, uh, I, I, would put the, I would put Led Zeppelin above the who, but... Interesting. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, if we're doing, you know, Rushmore-esque type of things, yeah. But that, you know, it's... It's preference, my friend. It's preference. It's whatever you like. Do you know? Do you know who the Rolling Stones and Beatles are? Right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I love the Beatles. No, okay. Absolutely. All right. You, if you had to pick, you'd uh, pick the Beatles. I would pick the Beatles. Are you a U two guy? Yeah, I like I like U two. They merit uh, consideration here. This is above their level. They're more like a Lewandowski. Okay, in this <laughs> in this whole thing. Okay. <laughs> In that I think as we go along, they'll get much more uh, attention and focus, but it'll never quite be at the uh, at the Beatles, Rolling Stones thing. All right. Anything else, Mousy? Nope. All right. Uh, use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there when you're uh, sending your questions over there on the Twitter machine or Facebook or any other uh, places out there. And uh, we will pick three and uh, read three off each and every week, as we always do. All right. Thanks. Moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for the uh, back three where we look at some big stories, games, moments out there. Mossy, what's in our back three this week? First up, Euro 2020 qualifying, and specifically this extraordinary Raheem Sterling, Joe Gomez oh story. So when Liverpool played Manchester City, those two got into a bit of a kerfuffle, and it carried over into international duty. Evidently, uh, Sterling confronted Gomez at the cafeteria at St. George's Park, which is England's training base, and attacked him. And it was a bad enough incident <laughs> that uh, Gareth Southgate removed Sterling from consideration for the Montenegro match. Now, they've since patched things up, and Sterling came out and apologized, and he was wrong. But it's it's triggered this whole larger conversation about how difficult is it for players at rival clubs to kind of switch that off when they go to international duty and all of a sudden become friends and teammates. Did you ever have that situation where you, you had a guy that you had friction with at club level, and then a few days later, all of a sudden you're sharing a locker room with him uh, for the United States? It was much more relative to something that he may have done, somebody may have done on the field that I would have any type of animosity. I... I, I I had very little, if any, when it came to it. And so it wasn't a, this is club versus club type of thing that anybody carried with them into the national team. It's a little different because I started my career with the national team. I, I did it very backwards of the way that it's supposed to do, you're supposed to do it. And we talked about that before. So maybe it's a little bit different in that I was so steeped in the national team that that was my affinity, was with the national team as opposed to any particular club that I played in. So it, it never manifested in certainly not fighting in the canteen or the kitchen or anything like, anything like that. But, you know, when you have what the rivalry has become, the global aspect of the rivalry between Man City and Liverpool and these super clubs out there and how, how much these clubs are, these players are identified and how much the clubs become part of their identity... I, I suppose that it will spill over. Now, having problems with players in, in camp, um, you know, that, that's happened all the time. Everybody, you know, fights here or there, either on the field or, or different places. I've seen that. It, it gets diffused very, very quickly. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of testosterone flying around and there's competition flying around uh, in, a, in, a, in a good way. Once again, competition is something we, we keep talking about. So I, I, do, I don't see this as, as a problem. I think it was dealt with correctly and quickly, and it seems like everybody is made nice and said the right things uh, uh, going forward. In this day and age of uh, of videos and 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 camera phones and all that kind of stuff, 
why was there no video of this? this, this <laughs> I mean, this is ripe for, for some sort of analysis of who said what first, who swung first, how, where, where, what deep rooted problems that they have. Once again, how was it, was it a, uh, was it relative to what clubs they play for all that kind of stuff? Yeah. When, uh, Mourinho was a uh, Real Madrid's coach, he stoked the tensions even more than usual between Real Madrid and Barcelona. There was some real concern it was going to affect the national team. And so Iker Casillas reached out to Puyol and Xavi to kind of make peace. And Mourinho found out about that and thought it was treason. And so that was the start of the Mourinho Casillas feud. And the, the two of them have never gotten along since they still take shots at each other every now and then in the press. So, I mean, there is a, a history with this kind of stuff. I will say the game where they left Sterling out, they beat Montenegro 7-0, and there were a lot of 6 yeah. nils and 7 nils the past few days in Europe, which, again, raised this issue of how tedious uh, these European qualifying campaigns can be. But, you know, Roy Smith did write an interesting piece that that's a bit of a privileged, elitist view from the perspective of the top teams, that a lot of these smaller countries do relish a chance to watch their national teams play every month. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting perspective to that whole uh, discussion. Wait, I don't understand. So Rory said what? Well, you know, we, invariably when you, you watch these big countries beat up on the Faroe Islands and Malta and, and, and Liechtenstein, people say, oh, these international breaks are a complete waste of time. And, well, you know, we're disrupting the flow of the club season uh, for this. And these matches are a joke. And why do you, having these so many minnows spoils these European qualifying campaigns? And Rory wrote a piece saying, well, wait a minute. You know, look at it from the perspective of these smaller countries. They right. enjoy getting to play every month against the big boys. And, and so it, it was an interesting perspective. It is, it is uh, <laughs> let, let me say one thing. And, and and this is probably uh, merits a whole bigger conversation, but I do want to get this in here because it's kind of bothered me the last few days. Cristiano Ronaldo will undoubtedly go down as one of the handful greatest players who ever butt. lived. I smell a butt. <laughs> I smell a butt. <laughs> but I will say, while his scoring records at club level are unimpeachable, his scoring records at international level, you can poke a lot of holes in. Uh, I don't know that there's ever been a player in history that's patted his stats more against minnows in qualifying campaigns, and he did it again the last few days. He's been in terrible form with Juventus. He got subbed out in their last game in the 55th minute against AC Milan, was furious about it, and so he goes off to international duty, scores four goals in two games against Lithuania and Luxembourg. He's now up to 99 international goals. He's going to break every scoring record at international level, but I would argue the numbers are a little... If you actually like look at who he scored against, who he hasn't scored against, I don't know. I, I have wow. some issues. Wow. How <laughs> How dare you, Masi? How dare you? Well, there, there's, a, there's a Russell Westbrook triple-doubles component to oh, Ronaldo's wow. international wow. scoring number. That's wow. all I'm going to say. Well, uh, it, you know, to get back to the, uh, the, you know, the thing about the, the, the fight, and we'll finish it here. As I've said before, it, it's amazing what players will put up with and will excuse in order to, in order to win. And any type of animosity, real or perceived out there, goes away when you have the opportunity to have somebody who you may hate uh, even personally or, or as a player, or you may hate playing against when they are on that opposite side. And, and in many cases, it's these super clubs that have all these players that then go to the national team. But uh, you will make room and have no problem playing uh, next to them when it comes to when you need them, not playing the minnows, but when you need them uh, <laughs> in the big games. All right. What's that? What else? We are in the midst of an international break, mm -hmm. uh, but because our producer is a Chelsea fan, we are going to spin it forward to the upcoming weekend in the Premier League. The big game is Manchester City hosting Chelsea on Saturday, and amazingly enough, Chelsea will go into that game above City in the standings. Where's little Chelsea now? Where are they here? Let's pull up these standings. Wait a second. This can't be right. Something. It's, they're third place? Is that true? Correct. They're 26 points, City at 25. Wow. Chelsea have won six straight Premier League games. City coming off that loss to Liverpool at Anfield. You know, everybody praising Chelsea. And to be fair, Jose Mourinho has praised Chelsea mm -hmm. as well. I've seen him talk about what a great job Frank Lampard is doing and bringing these young players along. But he's also a couple of times this season sort of checked the enthusiasm a little bit. I recall after the home game against Liverpool in which they lost but played really well, the fans applauded at the final whistle. And Mourinho said, wait a minute, when, when fans start applauding after a game that you lost at home, then you're no longer a big club. And Chelsea have to be careful about going too far right. down that route. And then he did so again this week where where he made a point of saying, well, they haven't really done it in a big match yet, and they have to do it against a big team to kind of right. validate all these good things that everybody's talking about. So do you buy that? What do you make of Mourinho you know, taking well, some shots here? Like you said, they're, they're tied in terms of points uh, for second, right? I mean, and only because of goal differential are they third. So the big clubs are always 
at or about the uh, top of the table. So they, they are still a big club. I did not anticipate them being this big this soon. I thought this was going to be much more of a project. And I still think that ultimately it's going to be a, a project. And yes, in the same way that we talked about the Liverpool-Man City game being a important point because you're finally facing your biggest rival, yeah, it, it's. I don't think it's fair to say that Chelsea is elite yet if they're not beating other elite teams. I think that that is fair. But having said all that, Frank has done a really, really good job of positioning this team, first off, above Man City, okay, and in a position to be challenging for a top four. If and when they get those opportunities to play against, not if, but when they get those opportunities to play against better teams, perceived better teams, now that's where we're going to find out what these uh, young players and what Frank's current version of uh, Chelsea is really all about. Now, the gap between Liverpool and City is nine points, which is right. all that matters in terms of the title race. Because oh, wait, hold on. Which city are you talking about? Manchester City. Because Leicester City, the gap is smaller. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> Good point. But I was about to say, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think either Chelsea or Leicester realistically are going to win the title. So, Man, it, how dare you? Just, <laughs> you're coming up to the top rung on everybody. Now, today. now Grant Wall, who at the start of the season said it was Speaking a, of coming a from the top. it was a given that the five teams that won the top European leagues last you season were going to win it again, up, huh? is realizing he's going to be wrong in England. He lashed out this past week at folks that are acting like it's over and 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 nine points uh, is is not that big. A deal at this point of the season and he's right the nine points in and of itself to, to say that that's an insurmountable gap at this point right. of the season is ridiculous the only thing i'll say is i already went into this campaign with a strong overwhelming conviction that liverpool were the best team that they were going to win it so the fact that the gap is nine now has only reinforced that so and, and you know we talked about this last week i think last year's liverpool team still had a little bit of self-doubt because they hadn't won a trophy under Klopp. winning that champions league title i think has removed any of that so they just have a whole swagger and confidence about them this season where i cannot conceive of them not winning the title. So I'm sorry, Grant. I am putting it out there that Liverpool, uh, I'm 100% confident, are going to. Well, barring see, injuries. Barring, I mean, obviously, oh, if, course, you know. Yes. You well, <laughs> I'm going to see Grant this weekend in Miami. I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the pod. But I will definitely tell him that you stood up for him on the pod. Are you, are you standing up for him right now? Is, did I get that correct or no? No, I'm actually attacking Oh, you him. are? Yeah, just See, obviously, I didn't understand what the hell you were talking about <laughs> right there. Um, <laughs> But actually, uh, we'll end on this. Actually, lot, lots happening uh, surrounding the NWSL. So mm-hmm. this was very interesting this week. So Sam Kerr, big NWSL star with the Chicago Red Stars. Arguably uh, best player in the world. Yes. She is off to Chelsea in a in a big deal. And I, and I read a lot of articles about this in the English media. Mm-hmm. There's a sense that these big European clubs have realized that I- investing in women's soccer makes sense because it doesn't cost that much money in the grand scheme of things to sign the best women's players right. in the world and to form a really good team. And it's, and it's very good for your brand and image as a club and so we're going to see more of this and and clubs like Chelsea trying to challenge Lyon who have been the dominant force in in European women's soccer and a lot of people think that's going to lead to a talent drain at, in the NWSL with a lot of players moving to Europe to combat that the NWSL has made a bunch of changes to its salary structure the salary cap has increased the the maximum salary has increased the minimum salary and also there's this allocation money now mm-hmm. that teams are going to have to be able to spend on big stars and everybody looked at that initially and said that's great that's going to grow the league. But then when the U.S. women's national team players looked at the fine print, mm-hmm. uh, the allocation money uh, does not apply to Canadian and uh, American players. I think the thinking is those players are going to opt to play in the NWSL anyway because of the, the comfort level, the proximity to home, and also uh, because of their international aspirations. Uh, so the, the league wants to really concentrate on attracting uh, stars from other parts of the world. But I don't know. That strategy might backfire because the U.S. women were none too happy about it. Megan Rapinoe's already railing against sure. it. We're being left out of this whole thing. What did you make of it? Well, to, to be clear, uh, the U.S. women uh, are under contract with the United States Soccer Federation. And so it was done to prop up the NWSL. And so there was a altruistic type of decision that was made. And it was done in order to have uh, all your players available. And in order to do that, you had to play in the NWSL. And so Megan Rapinoe's point is that, listen, we, quote unquote, we can argue whether this is true or not, we sacrificed to a certain extent uh, to help the league and to help the league uh, both directly, although Megan played, what, three games this year for, for her team. But having said that, still helped the league uh, directly and indirectly. So, and then she's saying, and now 
the good thing is happening, which is they're adding more money. And I think everybody can agree that's a good thing. And yet we're not going to be able to share in that because we are with it. Now, this, this might all go away because the United States Soccer Federation might get out of the business of the NWSL, at which, at which point whoever's there, they might be or might not be able to sign depending on how the language. I haven't read through the entire, the entire thing here. So I understand where the frustration and or anger uh, comes from. These are all contractual. These are all contracts that people that people sign. And so living up to the contracts, I do think, is important. But you mentioned this is being done in reaction to what is happening and what potentially can happen and what they think is going to happen uh, in the future. And that is, NWSL, welcome to the fact that you are competing in a global market. And that global market is opening up. And as you rightly mentioned, there are teams and owners around the world that when they do their ledger and they have uh, you know, income and expenses, that expenses side, when they put it up against, let's say they have a, 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 a men's team, it is dwarfs what the men's side is. And so therefore there is a, uh, there is a business to it that makes perfect sense for, while what in the women's game can be considered a lot of money, relative to the men's game, it's nothing. Yeah, you can very, very quickly amass some real good talent. And that's what the NWSL is up against. And this is a recognition that they need to do that and that there are owners that want the opportunity to do so. I think this will all get flushed out. I think ultimately that this will, the, the players, whether, whether it's American players or anybody else, are going to get paid more. But the fact is the United States is going to lose players. Players are going to see the potential and the opportunity that exists over there, and rightfully they're going to go and they're going to they're going to get theirs. They're going to make their uh, their money. But this is this is all this is all a good thing. People wanting to spend more money is a good thing. That they're not included in this, I understand where that uh, that is coming from, Megan Rapinoe and others. What about this whole business of the USL starting a competing yeah. women's league? I and I have said this from from the start. I believe that competition, once again, I think competition is the theme of this, uh, of this podcast. I believe that competition is good. I will support those out there that are attempting to build a better mousetrap, whether that's in the men's game or the women's game or anything else. Now, I know there was a lot of consternation when the news came out about the potential of this, this competing league happening. You know, we only have one. Why are we, why are we spreading ourselves thin? I, I get that. Um, but I, I believe in competition. I believe in the business. I believe if you can bring to market a better product, you should be allowed to do that and let the customer uh, out there decide. I'm not sure this is ultimately going to happen, but it was a shot across the bow. And the level of anger and concern should be concerning to, to everybody. If your product is that good, then it should be able to withstand competition. And you should be able to put it up against anything else that's coming in. Otherwise, it is a better mousetrap. And the customer out there and the soccer customer out there deserves the best product out there. And if somebody has the ability to bring to market that product, then I love it. And by the way, that goes with Major League Soccer or USL or anybody uh, out there that wants to do that. If you want to have a group of leagues that is playing with a promotion relegation type of system, have at it. And if that's what the customer wants, if that's what the market is demanding, then that's where the migration will happen and the others will go along, go by the wayside. And I will support you 100%. But just to say, no, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't try to have a better league and therefore a better product simply because there's already an existing one and we can't withstand that type of competition. No. I don't agree with that at all. Competition is good in sport and competition is good in business. And competition will give us a better product and competition will make us better soccer players. So that's the way that I look at that. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, we come to the end of yet another pod. Uh, thank you so much for uh, listening. And at the end of each and every pod, we do our, our one big thing. Uh, we started off talking about you know, the curious case of Greg Berhalter and uh, who he is who he isn't, and where he is going. Uh, he takes plenty of criticism, as is the case whenever you are a coach of a national team, and the U.S. men's national team is no different, especially, as I mentioned, because of the fact that 
Back in 2018, the United States men's national team did not qualify uh, for the World Cup. And even if they did, criticism and skepticism at times, I think, is, is fair and warranted. The game against Canada last week, I think that that was important. I think it will be looked back as being important for Greg Berhalter and for this uh, U.S. men's national team. Uh, and while I, at times, do talk about romance and what I, I can see is something that is romantic, I think we are in danger of losing what has made us, over the years, great. And not great, but good. And has made us, at the very least, competitive. And I think Greg Berhalter, in that game the other day, showed a side of himself and therefore showed a side of the U.S. men's national team that either has been lost or has been hiding for some time. And that's a good thing. It doesn't mean that you can plumb that, the depths of that well on a continual basis and have no problem competing with everybody else there. It doesn't mean that you can't evolve. It doesn't mean that you should try different things. But throughout it all, losing that character and that personality and that sense of identity that has been established over the last 50 years, let's say, I think that that is problematic at this point. And I think Greg Berhalter will look back at that Canada game and should be proud. And even though I, you know, I can say that you know, because of the way that they framed, they framed it after or before, it shouldn't be meaningful, I think it was meaningful. The next time that we are going to, you know, we, we should mention that we are broadcasting the, the Cuba game. And unless something ridiculous happens, unless there are puddles down in the Cayman Islands that the players are getting lifted over, I know we're going really deep when it comes to that, but for those that have been around and understand what happened in 2017, you'll understand that, that reference. Unless there are real problems and the soccer gods w want us to suffer yet another day, the U.S. should beat Cuba and therefore go to the final or the semifinal next summer of uh, the Nations League. Uh, and that will be good. But other than that, the next big, big game is going to be qualifying, and it starts in less than a year. And that's where it's for real. And that's where the United States Soccer Federation and Ernie Stewart will have to decide, is this heading in a direction that's going to equal, unfortunately, what happened in 2017? Or is it heading in the right direction? And if not, you gotta make a change. And I, I am fascinated to see how, over the next eight months, Greg Burhalter continues to build where he goes, where he zigs, where he zags, how he evolves, uh, and ultimately where this team ends up. But really, and I'll, just, I'll leave you with this, it's about winning. It always has been, it always will be. And we can talk till we're blue in the face about tactics and possession and playing out of the back and becoming better, but ultimately we care about winning. And winning solves a lot of the problems out there. They won the other day against Canada. Congratulations to Greg Berhalter and the uh, United States men's national team. That's a good thing. And we'll see uh, what happens against Cuba and uh, then going into uh, 2020, which will be a huge, huge year for the U.S. men's national team. All right, Mossy, anything else before we head out? Nope. Thank you so much for listening. Please download and review and rate and subscribe and do all the different things out there on all the different platforms and uh, let us know what's going on with that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on the social media platforms. And uh, who knows, you might hear your name being bandied about here on the uh, State of the Union podcast. All right, we will talk again next week. I will be back here once again. I am going to Miami this week for Soccer X. I will be interviewing Don Garber uh, down there in Miami. So I will have some questions and I will have a report from Miami as to what he said about what is going to be the 25th year of Major League Soccer in 2020. So a lot to celebrate, but I'm also interested to ask him some uh, more challenging questions about the, uh, the challenges that he has going forward into this 25th year of Major League Soccer. All right, size the day. 